Amen. That passage ought to be a little bit of a hint as to where we are going in the Lord's Word today and for uh, the next uh, maybe two to three months, however long the Lord wills. If you have a Bible, open with me to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, I love to read that passage uh, before considering Peter's writing, and we will talk uh, more about that as we go through the text that we are going to be in today. We have, um, if you'll remember back a number of months, we spent some time looking at Peter's first epistle last year, and then I think we journeyed through Malachi and had a stop in the Psalms and then took some weeks to look at Luke's gospel, the first uh, couple chapters there. So now we come back after that little detour to Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, and today we'll look at verses 1 through 3. Um, if you're familiar with Peter's writing, you, you know that there's not always a clean breaking point. Um, he writes as kind of an uneducated fisherman, though one who is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so his first several verses here, really through verse 11, it's kind of like an extended introduction. But we are going to kind of break it up to, to see what all he has. And today we want to consider the idea of the divine word of God. That is Peter's second epistle. Its focus is on the, the truth of God and what the Lord has taught and proclaimed. Um, this is the, the same writer and the same audience as First Peter, but you'll notice as we go through that it has a very different tone. There's a very different topic as Peter is writing to fortify and strengthen and encourage these churches as they stand firmly, as he calls them to stand firmly in the day of false teachers. So again, he wrote the, in 1 Peter to, to encourage a church that was suffering. And now he writes to fortify, to, to strengthen and to establish and to, to exhort these people to stand firm and to resist and to reject false teachers. And he does this beginning in chapter 1, by speaking of the authority and the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord's Word. So with that, let's look to our text, 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 1 and we'll stop at verse 3 for today. Please stand with me if you're able as we read the Lord's Word today. 1 Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 1. Beginning at verse 1, this is the inerrant and inspired word of God. It reads as follows, Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. May the Lord bless his word and write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now join me, if you will, in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and first we want to give you praise for you are holy, holy, holy. 
earth is full of your glory. All of your creation resounds together to declare and display your greatness, your majesty, your goodness, your grace, your compassion, but also your wrath and your indignation and your hatred towards sin. Lord, you're righteous in all that you say and do. You're good in all that you say and do. You're worthy to receive the praise of your people. Lord, as we come to your word today, the great task before us is to look at this glorious, inspired, divine truth and to glean from it truths to apply to our own little lives. Lord, this is a task that no mere man can complete. It's a task that must be empowered and worked within us by your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we ask that the Spirit would come and take the blinders off of our eyes, that you would humble our hearts and prepare our minds to receive the truth. Pray that you would implant your word into our hearts and that you would cause it to grow and to bear fruit, to bear fruit of repentance and righteousness and holiness in our lives from day to day. Lord, as we think about a new year, we know that this is a time of a, of a new beginning. But we also know that, that our lives are, are looked at as the course of the whole of them. And we pray, Lord, that we would take account of what we do with our lives, of how we live our lives, of the things that we spend our time doing, things to which we are devoted. Lord, I pray that we would measure them against the backdrop of eternity, not just merely one calendar year, but against the backdrop of all eternity, knowing that we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling and to redeem our time in these evil days. Lord, I pray that our minds, attention, and our hearts, affection, and devotion would be placed upon Christ this morning, that we would look to Christ, our glorious Savior, consider His work at the cross, that we would consider that in that work He purchased us to be His people, to be His bride, that He has washed us that we might be cleanse that he may present us to himself as those who are spotless and blameless and pure. So, Lord, by the power of your spirit, through the truth of your word, pray that you would do part of that work to accomplish that goal of cleansing us and purifying us today. Lord, help us not to rest upon our own strength. Help us not to, to rest upon our own merit, but to strive in the strength that you supply and to take hope in the merit of the righteousness of Christ. Lord, would you show us the Savior today? Would you sanctify us in the truth? Would you fill us with the true knowledge of you, the, the great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Lord, would you accomplish the work that you intend to do today, receiving all honor and glory and praise, for you alone are worthy. We ask all this in Christ's name. 
Amen. So as we begin, before we dive into verses 1 through 3, I want to take just a moment to kind of set up the context and the content of this uh, Peter's second letter to these churches of Asia Minor. And we can begin with that, Peter's audience. He, he says at the beginning of chapter 3 that this is the second letter that he is writing. And so in a way, this is a continuation of 1 Peter, the same author, the same audience. He is showing the same shepherding and pastoral love and care for these people. He began with that tender and loving, encouraging letter. Now he turns to some difficult truths. The same man, the same heart, but he turns to things that are, that are more um, polemic in nature and that he is going to address the danger and the coming destruction of false teachers. So sometimes I think what we can see here is that sometimes loving care from one saint to another involves saying the hard things. It involves saying things that are difficult to hear. And really, as we get into the second chapter of this letter, things that are difficult to read. Peter just just goes in with guns blazing as he destroys and dismantles and and shows the evil and the wickedness of these false teachers. And when we get to that chapter, it's going to feel weighty. It's hard to wade through to understand that what he describes here are people that surround us. They're people who even secretly work their way into the church. So you have the encouraging and, and building up letter in First Peter, and then you have this one where he's going to come in and he's kind of laying down the law. He's telling the people that you must walk diligently in the truth and reject those who are false, those who are deceitful, those who are deceivers. You must resist and identify and reject. So the, the author and the recipients are the same as First Peter, but that's really kind of where the similarities end. Um, there's, a, there's a couple passages, a couple statements from Peter that kind of set the direction of this letter. In chapter 2, he begins by saying that some pro- false prophets arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, and they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So you see kind of the tone of this letter. There's going to be swift destruction on those who are false. Then towards the end of chapter 3, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, speaking of the return of Christ, he said, Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. So that's kind of the two parallel paths of this letter, the, the one of identifying the false teachers and then the other saying, this is what you do in light of that falsehood. Be diligent. Be diligent to be found when Christ returns as one who is pure and spotless and blameless and regard his patience, the Lord's patience in return, as salvation. Go and be busy about the Lord's work as as he delays in the second coming of Christ. So there's also some historical context to note. Um, Second Peter was written, it's kind of believed that it was somewhere around 67 or 68 
AD, which is right at the end of the rule of Nero. And, and so this is two to four years probably after First Peter, and um, historians have kind of locked in on this timeline because Peter is believed to have died at the end of Nero's reign, and Nero died in 68 AD. So, so it's somewhere right towards the end, but what we know is that Nero's reign was a time of intense and violent persecution against the church. Nero hated Christians, he hated the church, and he loved himself, and he loved his own power and authority. And so it was in that time that Peter writes this letter. And an important note, I think, about that time is to understand that in times of wicked governments, like in Nero's day, like I think you could also say in our day, in those times, false teachers are often prevalent and growing and amassing more of a following to themselves. And you say, why, why is that? If they if the church is being persecuted, if Christians are suffering, how do false Christian teachers grow and, and prevail? And it's because they twist and pervert and tweak the message of the Bible, and so therefore they are received. The things that the world hates, false teachers change. They, they twist and pervert and, and pull back on the call to, to be holy and to hate sin and to be killing sin, and to cut off the arm of the flesh, false teachers will never tell you those things. And so they grow in times of false governments. And what we must know, it's as I think Vody Bauckham said a, a few years back, is that suffering for the Christian in, in one way is inevitable. In the Lord's providential plan, Christians will suffer. However, suffering for the sake of Christ is completely avoidable. You can avoid suffering for Christ by compromising the truth, by compromising the call to be holy. You can avoid suffering for Christ by compromising your life, your teaching, your doctrine, and the clear and pure proclamation of the gospel. If you don't want to suffer for the sake of Christ, don't preach the Christ of the Bible and don't preach His call and command to repent of sin and to turn away from sin to find life and hope in the Savior. So that's the context of Peter's second letter here. And to, to turn towards these first three verses, we can kind of start seeing some of the, the driving aim and the driving goal of Peter. He, he wants to set forth for the people the authority and the sufficiency of God's Word in all of life. In every area of life, God's Word is powerful, it is authoritative, and it is sufficient. God's Word instructs us in godliness. It promises us salvation, and it is by His Word that we are delivered from the ways of the world. As we think about Peter, we, we saw this in his first epistle, his writing is unbreakably linked to Christ. That's, that's one of the interesting things, I think, when you think about the human side of the writing of Scripture, is that you have this man who went through so much. He was a disciple of Christ during his earthly ministry. You, you know the whole story. He denied. He fell away. Christ restored him and commissioned him back in to ministry. 
And Peter, as he writes, he is just constantly driving us back to Christ. He's constantly pointing to the commands of Christ, to the life of Christ, to what he witnessed in Christ. And so when you think about these first three verses, kind of to to pare it down, because again, you've got this really long paragraph through verse 11, and to kind of pare it down, we, we see the idea that the bondservant of Christ must pursue the true knowledge of God. We, we are bondservants of Christ. The bondservant of Christ must pursue the true knowledge of God and allow the Lord's divine truth to empower your life in the ways of godliness. If you are a servant of the Most High, the Lord's divine truth will empower you. It will change you. It will transform you. It will conform you to the image of Christ. And so we want to focus on that word because that's Peter's focus as he begins this letter. His focus is on the authority and the sufficiency and the saving power of God's word. So let's begin at the beginning of verse 1 and look at the authoritative word. The authoritative word. He begins by writing, Simon Peter, a bondservant, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this first heading is a little bit of a play on words because when I say the authoritative word, what we're really driving to is Jesus Christ as the Word. John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And so we're seeing Jesus' authority in Peter's life. Jesus' authority over Peter. You know, if it was not for this authority and this command and rule of Jesus over Peter, this introduction would not read as it does. It would just read Simon, Simon, not Simon Peter, it would just say Simon, a cowardly sinner. Because apart from Christ, that's what this man was, a cowardly sinner who denied the Savior. But it doesn't. It reads Simon Peter, bondservant and an apostle of Christ. This is a man who boldly proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, as we just read. And so when you think about Peter's name, I think it's always worth stopping and considering as you set out um, on a journey of an exposition exposition of one of Peter's letters, to just think about that instance, to think about his name, the, the name of Peter. As Jesus stated, as we read, it is on the bedrock um, saying that Jesus is the Christ, the bedrock confession that Jesus is the Messiah that his church is built. And Peter, being that vocal leader of the disciples, he was the one that stood up. And when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? He says, they say you're all these things. And Jesus says, but what do you say? Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God, the one who is the Savior of the world. And we have to remember when we think about all that kind of presses under this letter, we have to think about and remember that confession. As Peter writes to a suffering church who was at war with evil false teachers, surely they needed that encouragement. Surely they needed to be reminded of that bedrock foundation that they're being built up on Christ who is the very cornerstone. They need to be reminded that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. Not only is Christ the only way to the Father, 
but Christ is the rock to which we cling, the rock to whom we cling as we suffer, as trial and tribulation rages, as we cling, as we fight these battles for the truth, we do it by clinging to the rock of Christ. Because in Christ we have all that is true, all that is lovely, all that is good, and all that is right. Christ is the rock. He is the solid rock to whom we cling. Peter said in John 6, verses 68 and 69, he said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Is that your heart today in these evil days? That, that when, when storms rage around you, whatever that storm may be, that you respond to the Lord Lord, to whom shall we go? Where shall we run? For you and your word and your truth have the words of everlasting life. Where else can we go? Where else can we find strength? Where else can we find hope? Where else can we find truth? It is in the Lord and in His revealed word. So as we think about these interactions of Peter with Jesus, really... Reading his name should solidify and should steady and strengthen our faith because we remember and we're pointed back to this idea that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Savior who keeps us, who holds us, and who will preserve us to the end. So so that's just Peter's name. But then what about the titles he uses? He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Bondservant, we know, is another word for the English word slave. It's the Greek word doulos, and it speaks of one who is submitted to the will and to the dominion of another. I think that's why, why some of the new translations are going to the word slave, because bondservant really is not quite strong enough for what the Greek term means. It's one who is fully submitted to the dominion and to the will of another. That was Peter standing before the Lord. That was his standing before the Lord, especially as you come, again, think about the timeline of this. This is some 30 to 35 years probably after that denial of Christ, after Christ recommissioned him into ministry. What has Peter become over those 30 years? He has become a devoted slave. He's become a devoted follower. He had been down the road of cowardly, sinful, self-preserving, self-protecting denial of Christ. Now he is one who publicly, who openly, who willingly and joyfully proclaims, I'm a slave of the Most High. I'm a slave of Jesus of Nazareth. Do what you will to me, but my lot is cast with him. Just think about that for a moment. Think about what Peter is saying here in the times in which he lived. In modern-day America, you can say, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ, and even to this day, the suffering will be minor for that. Peter lived in this time of horrific persecution where Nero was just annihilating Christians. He hated them and wanted to stamp them out and off the face of the earth. Yet Peter stands up 
says, I'm a slave of Christ. For I am his and he is mine because he bought me with his blood. You think about that. You think about where Peter came from. Where, where he is such a coward. Where that night where Jesus was arrested and then he's going through those mock trials in the middle of the night. Peter denies him three times, even to a young girl. What a coward. What a man who's not willing to stand and suffer with a beloved friend who he has already proclaimed to be the Christ. It's not as though Peter was unaware of who he was denying. Now we come to the end of his life. He stands and says, I'm a slave. I'm a servant. I'm submitted to this Messiah, friends, that is the transforming power of the gospel. That is what the gospel does. So you look at your own life, you consider whatever sin you may be battling, and maybe it's wicked and horrible and atrocious, but look at what Peter did and understand that the Lord, by the Spirit, through the word, as you are submitted to Christ as Lord and Savior, the Lord does this amazing, transformative, changing work. You have a new life. You're a new creature, a new creation in Christ. So I ask you, what is your excuse when you are unable to, to battle your sin? What is your excuse? The power that was at work in Peter is the same power of the same Holy Spirit that is in you if you are in Christ. What is my excuse? What is your excuse? We ought to consider this and glorify the Lord by devoting ourselves to Him more fully. Peter doesn't stop there. He says, I'm a bondservant and I am an apostle of Christ. I'm a messenger or a delegate of Christ. Now, in that day, there was some form of authority that was entrusted by the Lord to his apostles, to those disciples who walked with Christ and enduring his earthly ministry. But even more than that, what we see is the authority of Christ over Peter in that statement. Because an apostle is one who is a delegated messenger. They are sent with a specific message, a specific word. They go and act on behalf of the one who sends them, the one who speaks only the words of their master. Peter says, I'm speaking only the words of the Savior here. This word apostolos, it means one sent with orders. And you almost can get the idea of, of like an army, uh, a person in the army and military that is sent with orders from a commanding officer. And they're going to go and they're going to do exactly as the commander, the master has told them. Again, it comes back to being a slave of Christ. Peter's will was submitted completely, completely submitted to Christ. They're just... Think about that for a second. Think about this idea of being fully submitted in your will, in your desires, in what you pursue to Christ, to his word, to his commands, to his people. 
Do you love the bride of Christ that Christ himself loves and died for? Do you treat the bride of Christ with contempt? Or do you love her and speak well of her and and lift her up and show her in her beauty as Christ will one day bring to completion? The slave, the apostle, does exactly what the master would have. Are you a slave? Are you an apostle of Christ? That's the authority of the word. The authority of Christ, the word made flesh. Moving forward, we can also see the saving word, the the power of the word to bring salvation. Peter continues, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So we can see that salvation comes through the written word, through the knowledge of the Lord. But before coming to that, let's look at this idea of faith. He says that this letter is written to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Those who have received faith. Faith is a gift of God. It is something given, one dictionary says, by divine allotment. It is a divine gift given by the Lord. Your life is then allotted with Christ. You are marked out and bound by that faith. What that tells you is that you should have great assurance in Christ because it's the Lord who gives that faith. And when the Lord gives the gift of faith, he's not going to take it away because the Lord never changes. So when that faith is given... You are allotted to and with Christ forever. Take hope in that. Find joy in that. 1 Peter 1, 4 says that your salvation is reserved in heaven for you. And so this is really part of the outworking of the doctrine of election. The Lord gives the gift of faith to those whom he has chosen. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God. It's a gift. It's given to those the Lord chooses to give it to. So in that, in that idea of of election and in the giving of faith, do you see that the outworking of your life should be marked by humility? You did nothing to earn the Lord's favor. If it was left of the favor that we could earn, we would all be condemned to hell for all eternity. Because there are none who are righteous. No, not one. There are none who do good. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you are in Christ because he has chosen you. And that should cut off any, any edges, any thought, any sense of pride or arrogance or self-worth. But in this idea of faith, we should also see the idea, the idea of victorious resolve. And assurance, because faith is given from God, and He does not change. And so, what to highlight there is this resolve in which we walk, because we're resolved that we have hope, and so then we're resolved in following after Christ and obeying His commands. That idea of discipline and resolve cannot be separated from humility. To be so diligent. Peter later says to apply all diligence in your moral excellence. 
to apply such rigor to your life in your pursuit of holiness is not arrogant. It's an outworking of the most humble heart because you know that you are a slave, because you know that your life belongs to another. And that one to whom your life belongs has told you how to live. And the most humble thing you can do is to strive with all your strength, to strive with all your might, to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Peter says that you have received a faith of the same kind as ours now. Again, let's just stop and pull back and think about what's being saved because this letter applies to you as much as it applied to those saints to whom Peter wrote. You have received a faith of the same kind as even the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John and James and and all of these great saints who have gone before us. Your faith is every bit as precious. One, One commentator said that this is a faith that is equally precious and equally honored. You have to ask the question, why is my faith equally precious and equally as honored of of that as John Calvin or Peter or Paul or whoever you want to set forth? How is that faith of the same value? It's because it's not because you exercise the faith. It's because of the object of the faith. Your faith is precious and valuable because your faith is in a risen and reigning Savior. Dear friend, that should put wind in your sail. That should cut out the legs of, hum- of arrogance. It should cut you down to make you humble. But it should press you on because you realize that faith is powerful. And you think about the Puritans. You think about the great faith, the great diligence they, they, they exercised in their day. And you think, we, we, could never, we could never be like that today. Well... You have the same faith, you have the same Savior, you have the same Holy Spirit, so what's lacking is that devotion. We're getting ahead of ourselves there, so better slow down, put on the brakes. You have a faith that is equal, and it's a faith that's equal because, as Peter continues, it's by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have received a faith of equal value and honor because that faith finds its hope, it finds its application in the righteousness of Christ. If Christ wasn't righteous, your faith would be worthless. But you find your hope in the righteousness of the Savior. This means that we are all called to the same response to the Savior. We're all called to glorify God, to give our lives as living sacrifices of worship to the Lord. There are different roles in life. Think about the church. There are different roles within the church, but we are all of one faith. We are all of one family. We are all being built into the house of God. So you may have a different role than a brother or sister, but you have an equally precious faith. That applies in the home as well to to husband and wife and and father and mother to their children. If those children are in the Lord, you all have the same faith. You have different roles that you carry out by God's design, but you are equally precious and equally saved in the Lord's 
eyes. So what's the outworking? What is the application of this salvation? Look at verse 2. Peter says in this greeting, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That is the explanation of the outworking of this faith. That grace and peace are multiplied to you as a saint of Christ in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge of Jesus our Lord. The Lord's grace and peace are multiplied to you through his revelation of Holy Scripture. Peter is kind of setting the stage for his primary exhortations in this letter. At the end of chapter 3, he says, Be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Be on guard so that you don't fall away because of these unprincipled false teachers and that you are falling away from your steadfast stand upon the truth. How do you do that? By the grace and peace of the Lord being multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It is through knowing God. It's through knowing Christ. It's through knowing the person and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. That is how you stand firm. That is how you resist. That is how you ensure that your lot is not cast with a false proclaimer of a false gospel or a false doctrine. Because you know God, you know His Word, you know His character, and you know His commands. So the authoritative Word, the saving Word, then we come to verse 3 and see the sufficient Word. Peter continues, seeing that this divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And it's everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, this verse, and verse 4 as well as we'll look at, Lord willing, next week, could, this verse could stand on its own. You could easily have a, have a full four-point sermon on what Peter writes here, but we want to see all this in the context because it makes it even more more helpful, more encouraging, more exhorting to see this in this context. What Peter's saying is exactly as he writes, the Lord has given us everything. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, everything to make you mature in Christ, everything to present you to himself pure and blameless and spotless. Everything has been given through the true knowledge of Him, through His Word. Thinking about the sufficiency of the Word of God, let's begin with that first statement, that His divine power is that which grants us everything. The empowerment of true godliness is God's strength at work in you. If you want to be godly, if you want to kill sin, the empowerment behind that is God's strength working in you. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. I labored, I labored more than all of them, but it wasn't me who was working, it was God's power at work in me. 
The Lord gives us his spirit. And, and just keep, keep your thinking hat on here to, to make sure that we don't miss this because this is critically important to the living of the Christian life. The Lord gives us his spirit and we respond by offering this feeble, powerless return of our own effort. And then by his divine power, through the working of the Holy Spirit, you are conformed to Christ. Your effort is powerless, but that powerless effort is miraculously strengthened. It's miraculously strong by the power of the Spirit in you. Do you understand that? Do you understand that if you offer in your own strength, by your own merit, by your own doing, you can give all that you have And if it's not done by the power of the Spirit, if the Lord does not give strength to what you do, it's worthless. It's powerless. It accomplishes absolutely nothing. But you give that meager effort, and then the Lord empowers it. The the Lord puts breath into it by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord's divine power is also the source of, of the word by which he instructs and sanctifies us. Think about 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is inspired by God. It's, it's breathed out by God through the Holy Spirit, and all scripture is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. That which the Lord uses to sanctify his people is brought about by his divine power. So it's God's power that grants us the strength to walk in holiness. It's God's power that grants the instruction by which we know how to grow in holiness. So Peter continues on here. He says, His divine power has granted to us, granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. By the Lord's gracious gifting that you are given the strength to kill sin. It's the Lord's grace. It is His good pleasure that you grow in godliness. Do you understand that? That it brings the Lord pleasure for His people to be conformed to His Son. You are not working against God when you are adding effort to the work that He does. You're doing exactly as He commands. He does the work. He gives the gifts to sanctify But we work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. Paul told the Philippians, work out your salvation in fear and in trembling, but know that it's God who is at work. It is God who wills and works in you for his good pleasure. So he's granted the power, but you supply that effort. And so you ask, how do we do that? How do we work out our salvation? One thing that we have to do is to walk by the Spirit, to not quench the spirit. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 verse, um, we could read a lot there, but verses 29 through 32, there at the end of the chapter, Paul writes, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. How do you work out your salvation? It's by not grieving the Holy Spirit. It's by putting off and putting away these things like slander and anger and malice and wrath. It's like putting away unwholesome speech, but only speaking that which is good for edification, for the sanctification of those who hear you. It is by being kind and tender-hearted and loving and forgiving just as Christ forgave you. That is how you work out your salvation, by putting off sin and walking in the Holy Spirit. The Lord has given us, has granted us, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Life and godliness, really what's in view there is the, the spiritual life. It's, it's not that the Lord gives us everything to sustain our physical lives. The Lord does sustain our lives. But Peter's talking about the spiritual realm here. The Lord gives you everything you need for your spiritual life to be sustained and for it to grow and to flourish and to produce fruit. Calvin says that this should drive us to our knees in thanks and in humility and in humble seeking the Lord, humbly seeking the Lord, because it's the Lord that gives you all of this. If you lack in godliness, it's because you lack in effort. Lacking effort flows from lacking devotion. All that points back to us. The remedy to that lacking devotion, the remedy to that lacking effort, though, is not that you buckle down and try harder. The answer is not that you go put on more steam and put forth more effort. It's that you throw yourself upon the grace of the Lord. It's that you fall on your knees before Him and say, Lord, change my heart. Take away these sinful desires. Give me desires for that which is good and pleasing and right. What does that take? It takes discipline on our own part. You see that lacking effort, and you know, I must go to the Lord. I must ask my God for help. We are called to devotion, but the Lord gives energy to our devotion. We must labor, but we labor in the strength that God supplies. We must have faith, but faith is a gift of God. It's kind of what you see in James chapter 1, verse 5, about wisdom. James writes there, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So you go and you ask the Lord for wisdom, the Lord's going to give it. Is he just going to magically apply wisdom to you? No, it's going to come through his word, through his truth, filling your mind and filling your heart, but it's the Lord that does that work, and it's the same way with godliness. You ask the Lord for the help, and then you go to His Word and let Him work those things in and out of you. So the Lord supplies everything needed for life and godliness, and He does this, Peter says, through the true knowledge of Him who calls us. The true knowledge. This is not just knowledge. It's not just gnosis. It's epinosis. It it adds strength and power to that idea. The the true knowledge is a good translation. This is precise and correct understanding specifically of 
God. You know, you go back to the high priestly prayer of John 17. Jesus began in verse 3, he said, This is eternal life, that they may know you. They may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you. We know the Lord through his truth. And then Jesus went on to say, John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the Lord builds us up. He transforms us. He conforms us to Christ through making us know him. Not just his commands, but knowing him and his character, his faithfulness, and his goodness. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 here is kind of like Peter's, I think, reciting that prayer that he listened to from Jesus, saying that, yeah, the Lord does supply it all. He supplies it all as you know him more. And that truth fills you, and it overflows you, and it works out of you. How does the Lord do this glorious work? We'll come to a kind of a screeching halt here, because verse 4 really belongs with these verses, and the rest of those first 11 belong here, but we'll come to a screeching halt kind of here at the end of verse 3, where Peter says that he gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. That's how the Lord accomplishes the work. He calls us by his glory and excellence. I love MacArthur's commentary here. MacArthur wrote, God affects his saving call through the revealed majesty of his Son. Sinners are drawn by the glory and excellence of Jesus Christ. Listen to that again. Sinners are drawn by the glory and excellence of Jesus Christ. There's a question in there for us. Do we proclaim the glory and excellence of Christ? Do you proclaim Christ as this this glorious and majestic Savior? Does your life portray Christ as a glorious and powerful and reigning and majestic Savior? It is that beauty of Christ, that glory of Christ that the Lord uses to draw sinners. It's how he calls them through his own glory and excellence. Do we as a church, do we as a church display the glory and excellence of Christ? By this the world will know you, your love for one another. Does your love for one another exceed that which the world knows and cause the world to think, wow, what a glorious God, what a great Savior they must serve. The Word of God has profound effects on our lives and Really, there's no better way to start a new year than this understanding of the profound power of the truth. And the profound effects go well beyond just these short three verses. We'll look next week, Lord willing, at how the Word causes us to overcome, gives us victory over the corruption of the world, how the Word causes and calls us to apply all diligence through that knowledge so that we may be perfect that we may pursue moral excellence. It's the Word that does this. And so again, as we're at the beginning of a year, I ask you, is, is your study of the Lord's Word really what it needs to be? Do you spend adequate, adequate time studying God's truth? 
It means every day. I, I won't tell you how much it needs to be every day, but I can tell you that every day you need to be filled with God's Word. And it's the Word that does all of this work. So if you are neglecting the study and the meditation of Scripture, you're neglecting this power of God that changes your life. We must walk in the truth. We must submit to the Word, and we submit to the Word while we fix our eyes upon Christ. We fix our eyes upon the glorious Christ that is displayed in all of Scripture. Christ is the great King of all. Scripture always points to Christ. The whole of Scripture always points to Christ. So let us submit to His Word. May we love His Word. And may we fix our eyes on our great King. Follow after Him. Ask Him to sanctify us. To conform us to His image. That we might glorify His great name. And go out and proclaim the gospel to all who will hear all of this by the power of the Spirit and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would come and write your word upon our hearts, that you would help us to take and understand and, Lord, to live according to your revealed word. Pray that its truth would bear witness in our souls and that by your Spirit you would Show us the areas of our lives that do not align with what you call and command in your word. Lord, make us to be more like Christ. Help us to put away the cares and the concerns of the world, to fix our eyes upon the Savior, and to be more like him each and every day of our lives. We ask that you would be glorified through all that has been said and done today and in the rest of our service. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.